I'm going to invite you to uh, bow with me in prayer here for a moment. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together right now and pray and uh, seek your face as we are looking to your word to learn something very important about not envying, because love does not envy. And God, as we are doing this, we are mindful today of those who are out at Covenant Park Bible Camp, uh, many of our other family members that are covering the same subject today. So we ask by your Holy Spirit that you'd minister to them and through them and for Pastor Nathan as he preaches. And God, for those who are not here in person, but those who are participating in our worship service online, we think of them right now too, God, and that you would uh, touch their hearts by your Spirit as we learn together and grow closer to you and learning what your love is because, God, you are a God of love. So we ask you to bless our time in your word in Jesus' name. Amen. For all you Sesame Street fans out there, uh, I'm one myself because I actually grew up with Sesame Street. It's a little over 50 years of age now, so I'm not going to tell you, but I was in my early elementary school years, and we actually would go to our library, our IMC in the elementary school I was in, and we could watch some of the first episodes of Sesame Street. And who could ever forget Cookie Monster? All right? And... Uh, Actually, the best man in Cindy and my wedding was a Youth for Christ worker who was nicknamed Monster Man because he loved cookies after the cookie monster. And particularly, he loved Ermadale Williams's cookies from our church here. And so he was nicknamed Monster. Everybody called him Monster Man. Who could forget Cookie Monster? Well, one of the characters on Sesame Street was Kermit the Frog. And he had a famous line that he used to say, it's not easy being green. And obviously, he was saying that it's, you know, not easy being a frog. It's not easy being who I am. But I think the greater lesson of what he was teaching is that it actually is pretty easy to be green. In fact, I would argue that being green is one of the most natural things for human beings to be. William Shakespeare called jealousy the green sickness. And what do we often do when we see someone who's an envious person? Someone might say, oh, they're green with envy. It's truly easy to be green, isn't it? You know, in the ancient Greek world, they used to pass along a story in their folklore about, uh, to successive generations about envy because they wanted them to learn the dangers of envy. And the Greco-Roman culture in particular um, was really concerned about wisdom and philosophy. And so the story is about the citizens of an ancient Greek city who built this beautiful statue in the center of town to honor a particular athlete who was a great champion in the public games for this particular city. Basically, he was their Olympic champion in the early days of the Olympics. In all of Greece, he was the greatest athlete in this particular uh, field. He was this great champion. So they built a statue to honor him and put it in the center of their city. But the problem was that there was another man from the same city of this honored athlete who was this athlete's biggest rival, the last one left for the champion to defeat. And this man was so envious of the honored champion that he vowed privately to destroy the statue. So every night, under the cover of darkness, he would go out, dig away a little dirt from the foundation, and chisel away at the foundation in secrecy, hoping one day that he would 
destroy the foundation enough that the statue would topple over. He'd cover it back up with dirt, and he'd go out and repeat the process every night. One night, he finally succeeded, and it did fall. But it fell on him before he could get out of the way. He died the victim of his own envy. This, this ancient Greek athlete wasn't the first person and certainly hasn't been the last person to get caught up in their own envy and subsequently do something very foolish and hurt themselves. King Solomon said thousands of years ago in Proverbs chapter 27, verse 4, anger is cruel and fury overwhelming, but who can stand before jealousy? Who? Who can take it? Who can live their life bearing up under the weight of envy? What it does to someone's physical health and well-being and their family and their friends and their neighborhood and their community. Who can bear that weight? The Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 5 in verse 20. It's a context where Paul is contrasting life in the flesh. Here's life in the flesh and here's life in the Holy Spirit. And he's going to conclude this section in verse 22 on by saying that the life in the Spirit, that's the fruit of the Spirit. You know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, above which things there is no law. But he says at the beginning, here are the deeds of the flesh. The acts of the flesh are obvious. And he gives a long list of things that display that somebody is living according to their fleshly desires. And one of those is jealousy, being envious of others. Do you know that there's two kinds of people in this world? Two kinds. That's all there is. People who are millionaires and people who want to be millionaires. That's it. That's a description. Uh, you know, we always want something more something better. We never have enough and we never are enough. In other words, we are not very content people. And if you doubt me on that, travel to a third world country sometime. Go see people who have absolutely nothing. Christian people. And they'll have joy and smiles and happiness and all this kind of stuff. And you come back to the West where people have so much stuff, they don't even know what they have. Many times they lose things because they have so many things. And, and they periodically got to have garage sales to get rid of stuff or bring it to, you know, goodwill or on and on and on. People are, you know, no joy. I read this week where one pastor said that if we did away with the sins of jealousy and, and, and envy, the entire American co economy would collapse. Although this may not be completely true, there is a lot to be said about the dire consequences of consumerism. And sadly, sadly, some of that consumerism finds its way into the church with people and their expectations. You know, people have to be inspired. Oh, they've got to be ministered to. They've got to be wowed. Oh, they, they come with all of that and they gather together in the church and was it any good or not today? Was it? You know, not coming with what do I have to give? What do I have to offer the Lord today? Can I come in a simple heart of sacrifice? Another aspect of envy is not only do I wish I had what you have or that I wish I had even more than what you have, but the other side of it is I wish you didn't have what you have at all. I wish you didn't have such and such. So the first level of envy is wanting what someone else has. The second level is resenting that they have it at all. And envy and jealousy is never likes to see others succeed. It doesn't like to see others have accomplishments or be blessed or, or, or something great happen for them. So when they don't like that, 
They do whatever it's necessary to cut someone down to size. And here's a fact of life I want to introduce you to. The only people in life who will ever cut you down are ones that are lower than you. They're the ones that want to chisel away at the bottom of the foundation here. And that, in a nutshell, is the summary of envy and jealousy. It truly shows how small people are inside. You know, envy is called the great leveler of mankind. Everyone has to have at least the same or even less than what I have. And if they don't, then envy tries to put the other person down by saying bad things or besmirching them or, you know, not uh, holding them in high regard. You know, envy is the behavior that crabs demonstrate when they are caught in fishermen's pots and the bottom of the ocean. You know, when one crab starts to crawl out or tries to get out, what do the other crabs do? They reach up and grab that crab and pull it back down to their level. Do you know what the moral of that story is? Don't be a crab. I thought that was funny anyway. But we're in a sermon series here in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 this summer called The Most Excellent Way, and that's love. And it concludes in verse 13 by saying these three remain. Things that are eternal. These three remain. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. That's the most excellent way. And in verses 4 through 8 that we're concentrating on, where they have those 15 verbs that describe the agape love, which is God. God is love. Remember, we've learned that. And he, is, he loves us unconditionally. And that's the love that He wants us to demonstrate to others. And there's 15 verbs there that describe what love is. And we found out in our, a couple weeks ago that love is patient. First thing on the list is patience. That last week we learned that love is kind. And today we learn that love does not envy. In other words, selfish jealousy is at odds with God's love. And God wants His love to be displayed in this world through His image bearers, His children. Now the Greek word for envy here is the word zelao which is where we get our English word zealous from. It means to burn with zeal, to be jealous of, to deeply set one's heart upon something to the point that we envy someone else, to the point where we hate someone else or we are angry about it. And the idea of 1 Corinthians 13 is that love does not focus on selfish personal desires. God's love is selfless, not selfish. And envy is the exact opposite of what God has taught us in the Ten Commandments, and particularly the last two commandments where it tells us not to bear false witness against somebody else, and where it says, you shall not covet. And in God's Ten Commandments, the first four are about loving God. You know, not having other gods before us, not taking the name of the Lord in vain, uh, remembering the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Those commandments in the first four, there's four of them that are all directed toward God and all about our love for God. And then from commandment on number five to the end, it's about loving others. Honor your father and mother so that the days may be long upon the land which the Lord God gives to you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet. Now, listen to what the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 13 about those Ten Commandments. And, and love, God's love, agape love, verses 8 through 10. It says, let no debt remain outstanding 
accept the continuing debt to agape one another. For whoever agapes others, whoever loves others, has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. You know, we live in a culture that rewards envy. It wants us to have untoward love toward things that we don't have or we shouldn't have or that God doesn't even want us to have. And advertisers cash in on envy that people have. Celebrities get rich promoting this envy in people. Sports figures do the same. Politicians alike. They all exhort us implicitly and explicitly to be jealous of those who have more than we have by the way of status or possessions or influence or beauty or appearance or accomplishments or whatever. God's Word says, love does not envy. And did you know that one of the hallmarks of envious people is they're not able to rejoice when good things happen in other people's lives. Like Romans chapter 12 verse 15 tells us, to rejoice with those who rejoice People can't do that if they're envious. So I'm going to ask you today, which category would you be in when something really wonderful happens to someone else? Something maybe even that you'd like to have happen to you or to your family. Are you a person that comes alongside them and, oh, praise God, that's so wonderful. What a blessing. I'm so happy for you. So happy for your family. Wow, that's got to be so amazing. Are you a person who does that or are you a person who says nothing? Are you a rejoicer? Or are you a non-rejoicer? You know, it's been said that envy is the easiest sin of all to hide. Because all we have to do is keep our mouth shut. We're not happy. We don't like. This person gets this. That person has that. We don't reveal what's in our heart. But you know the telling part? The diagnostic part of all of this is when we keep our mouth shut when good things happen to others, and again, things we might want to have happen to us, it tells us there's envy in someone's heart. If you can't rejoice with other people when blessings happen to them, there's envy in the heart. You know, in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, the Corinthians we are taught here were placing higher values on certain spiritual gifts, thinking that some were more important than others, kind of having a class system of more and less important spiritual gifts. And in chapter 12, Paul points out that all spiritual gifts are part of the body. And he uses the analogy of a human body that the foot can't say to the eye, I don't need you. The hand can't say to the ear, I don't need you. Every part of the body is important. And everyone's spiritual gifts are to be used for the purpose of serving others and for building up the church. And no one person has all the gifts. But every believer, it's a common grace, a spiritual grace, a charismatic gift Every believer in Christ has at least one gift. And love demands that this gift or these gifts be used to serve others rather than to serve themselves. You know, Proverbs chapter 14, verse 30 says, A heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. When a person has peace in their own life and they're not going around envying everything else that everybody else has and what they don't have, 
That's a peaceful way to live. It's a blessing even to their own physical health. And it's a blessing to the church, with the body of Christ, when people do the same thing. You know, people express envy in so many different ways. But mainly it happens through comparison. Comparing ourselves to others, what I have and what I don't have. And let me list for you seven key ways that people tend to compare themselves with others. Number one, someone's friend is getting married and this person is not married. So they start feeling resentment building up in their life. I'm missing out. You know, why isn't this happening to me? They get to be married and I, I can't seem to find anybody. I can't seem to get married. Another one is when couples can't have children. They, they see other people who are having children left and right. Some people who probably shouldn't even be having children, popping them out left and right, and there are children everywhere they look, and we can't conceive. We can't seem to have children. What, what's with that? Or someone has a child who's always sick, or maybe a child with disability issues, and everyone around them has children that are healthy and happy and well-rounded and wonderful children. What's up with that? You know, a guy told me after the first service today, he says, i got to confess to you, I've been envious of you for many, many years because of your children growing up and all serving the Lord and your wonderful marriage. And, I, and then I think to myself, you know what? He's got burdens he carries that I don't want to have. I don't want to have. But we do that. We envy others. He confessed that to me today. Another way is someone's a second stringer on their sports team. All I do is collect splinters on the bench. But Mr. Know-it-all... Mr. Smart Alec, you know, the coach's kid down there, gets a lot of playing time, though he doesn't work that hard. He doesn't even show up in the weight room. I've never seen him in the weight room. I don't think he knows the address to the weight room. He doesn't put in any extra work. What's with that? Or here's one. I see my unethical, shady neighbors bending the rules, and they're prospering. They're doing so well, and I play by the rules. I work so hard. I deserve good things. I deserve prosperity and success more than them. Or here's one. Pastors. Pastors are notorious for being envious. They compare themselves to other pastors, to other churches, you know, they go to conferences and they look at what they're doing and someone else is doing this and, oh man, they want other, you know, envious of other ministries and bigger this and bigger that and bigger attendance and bigger budgets and, oh, oh, envy everywhere. And the truth is, I learned this at Midwest Ministries, a conference I was at when I was on the board of order ministry just a month and a half ago, that every single pastor and everybody that you see leading up here, in order to get up in front of people, you got to have a little bit of narcissism in you. You have to. The secret is learning to manage it. And when people get themselves into trouble, it's because they're not able to manage that narcissism. You can't get up in front of people because you're at risk of people criticizing and everything else if you don't have a level of narcissism. Pastors are notorious for comparing themselves to others. And here's one, and this is the big one, especially for younger people. You know, when you get to be old like me, short, fat, bold, old, you know, you don't really compare yourself to how good other people look because it's just like, man, I'm just trying to get up in the morning. And then I got to look in that suffering mirror every day and look at that guy, you know, because I got to shave. So, and then I'm trying not to cut myself like crazy, you know. But people have a lot of, they, they, the comparison is about appearance, looks, fashions. And it's so easy to go through life viewing others as more attractive, or better off than we are. And remember, remember this biblical truth. God is the one who's created us. 
In fact, he tells us in Psalm 139 that you are fearfully and wonderfully made, that I knit you together in your mother's womb. God made us the way we are. But when we're envious of others, what are we saying? God, you owe me. God, you let me down. That's an enemy of our heart, an enemy of the heart, because who we are questioning and who we are blaming is God. You know, in John chapter 21, we have the powerful story of the resurrected Jesus restoring his servant, Peter, back to ministry after the events that had led up to his crucifixion where Peter had denied Jesus three times. I don't even know. Don't know this guy. Don't know what you're talking about. And there's Peter out fishing because that was his livelihood with many of the other disciples and they fished in the early hours and there's Jesus on shore cooking fish. And they recognize him, and they, man, they stormed to, to shore as fast as they can get there. And what does Jesus do? What does Jesus do? Three times he asks Peter, Peter, do you love me? Oh, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Feed my sheep. Peter, Peter, do you love me? Yeah, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus responded, feed my sheep. Third time, it's got to be getting pretty obvious. You denied me three times. Three times, I'm going to ask you, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Lord. Yes, I do, Lord. Feed my sheep. Now, we know this story. We're familiar with it. But I bet you have never thought about this story in terms of envy. And I didn't tell recently when I read this brilliant contemporary Bible scholar who referenced that story, and I'm like, I never saw that before. Let's look at verses 18 and 19 of chapter 21. Jesus said this, after it was all, do you love me and feed my sheep? Jesus said, very truly I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Not a very great prospect. Jesus, you know, Jesus says, Peter, you're going to get crucified inverted. That's what he's telling him. In verse 20, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the su supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Here's Peter. He's just told the kind of death he's going to have, and I don't think he likes it a whole lot. That don't seem very fair. What's the deal? I get to be crucified upside down, you know, to glorify God. Okay, Jesus, okay. I get that. You've asked me if I love you. I said, okay, we're there. But what about him? What about John, the one who laid on your chest, the one who asked you, who's going to betray me? And that's when the denial story happened. Okay, what about him? Do you see beneath the surface here? The envy in Peter's heart? Jesus, this isn't fair. Why does John get off so easy? So how does Jesus respond? Look at verse 22. Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is it to you? You must follow me. What is Jesus saying? Stop. Stop the nonsense. Stop comparing yourself to others. Stop comparing yourself 
to John. What I have for him, I have for him. But what I have for you, Peter, is me. You will glorify me. And Peter, Peter, am I not enough for you? Do you see what he's saying? When we're going around comparing and, oh, God, you owe me, and I'm not pretty enough, and I'm not this, and I'm not that, I'm shortchanged, and I'm, you know, Jesus says, I'm enough. Do you believe Jesus is enough for you? Do you believe that? Stop the comparing. What I have for you is me. And the Apostle Paul figured that out. In Philippians chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, he said, I've learned the secret. I've learned it. The secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or living in want. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I can, I've learned it. I've learned that secret. The secret is Jesus. You know what the secret to overcoming lust is? It's Jesus. Do you know what the secret and the victory over pride that, you know, tears our lives up? It's Jesus. Do you know what the secret to arrogance is? It's Jesus. What's the secret to insecurity? It's Jesus. Oh, I can't. I'm a single. I can't go to that party. I can't go to that event. Uh, you know, I'll sit there like a lump on the log and everybody's there and they're happily married. No. You know what you do? You take Jesus as your date. Jesus goes with you. And you can laugh and have fun and have a great time. And it doesn't matter what your station in life is. Whatever your insecurities are, you take Jesus with you. See, the secret to overcoming greed. Our culture's rampantly filled with greed. The answer is Jesus. And what is the secret to envy? It's Jesus. If you take Jesus with you, wherever you go and whatever you do, you will always have enough and you will always be enough. And you know how I know that? It's because that's what God's Word tells us. God's Word tells us that God is love and that God's love is in God's children. And God's children then remember that what His love is. And His love does not envy. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we thank You today again for this word that you have shared with us today. And God, recognizing that, we all of a sudden can see so many stories in the Bible about comparison and, and complaining to God that we don't have enough. God, I'm reminded of the miracle of, of the feeding of the 5,000 in John chapter 6, where the disciples come to you, Lord, and tell you, we, we can't feed these people. We've got to send them away. It would take 200 denarii to fill all, feed all these people. And well, what do we have? Jesus asks, and a little boy, well, his little boy's got two fish and five loaves of bread, barley loaves of bread. That's it, just this little bit. That's it. We don't have enough. Comparing to what we need, we don't have enough. And Jesus, you miraculously blessed that gift, and you provided plenty for everybody to eat. And then amazingly, miraculously, there were 12 basketfuls left afterwards one for each of the disciples to prove to them that wherever we go and whatever we do, when Jesus is there, there's always enough, always enough. Lord, that's a lesson that we need desperately so that we can go out and love people in this world the way you want.
not envious of them. Happy, blessed people. Oh God, it's a big lesson, but we thank you for it today and ask you to, by your Holy Spirit, to help us live up and into that in Jesus' name. Amen.